You're listening to audio from St. Luke Church in Lexington, Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more or donate to this ministry, please check out our website at stlukelex.com. How's everybody? Good to see you. Ooh, it's been good and hot lately. How many people are excited? Not so much. All right, a few. Thank you, hot heat lovers. Fantastic. Uh, hey, we start a new teaching series today uh, called God in Search of Us. Today we're going to take a look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Don't fret, we're not going to read 65, 6, 7 verses of Scripture. So I, I failed. I dropped the ball. Ben, my Old Testament scholar, in residence. I've failed him. Uh, but what we are going to do is kind of summarize it with something very important. We're going to come back to it here in just a minute. So let's read the scripture together from Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, with some chutzpah. Here we go. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, 150 years ago, Friedrich Nietzsche, the famed atheist, wrote a parable. The parable of a madman, he called it. And the story goes something like this. There was a madman who ran into the marketplace in the wee hours of one morning and began to yell to the townspeople, I'm searching for God, I'm searching for God. And this, of course, at first startled them. And then they began to chide him. And they said, well, where did God go? Did you misplace him? Did he go off on a long voyage? Has he emigrated to a foreign land? And then they began to laugh. And in the days that followed the parable, some have said that really religion is people who are searching for God. At the heart of it, you look at all the religions of the world, religion is ultimately about people's search for God. Nietzsche and some of his counterparts attacked this, and they said, well, really, religion is just a wish or a hope or a desire for some kind of self-understanding. And in fact, later Freud would join Nietzsche in this pursuit and say that religion ultimately is silly, it's superstitious, and at the end of the day, it can be used as a means of control for the weak-minded. So, let's sing a worship song. Who's excited today? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so uh, who's, the, the, their claim really that religion is a projection. We want something to be true, ergo we make it true, and they said ultimately this is all there is. This stuff that you can touch and see and hear and taste, th this is all that there is. Th there's really nothing beyond this in this search. Eh, it's kind of silly. Now you say, well, who cares, Brian? Because these guys, they're dead and gone, and they're atheists, and this is church, and we're all about faith and Jesus, and yay! But I would submit to you, actually, their voices are everywhere in our culture. Let me give you an example. How many of you have said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Kelly Clarkson sang it. I'm not going to do that for you this morning. Yeah, you know where the quote came from? Nietzsche. 
Or what about this premise that sex sells and sort of we've, we've become so numb to it at this point that we almost expect it in every advertisement that we see. Any guess where this comes from? Well, Freud. So their voices are very much everywhere. In fact, in a lot of ways, we've just sort of accepted some of the things that the madman has said all along. And you might say, all right, fine, Brian, whatever. At the end of the day, who cares? They're atheists. Well, they don't have a faith, and that's where you're wrong. Because atheism is a faith. It has its own truth claims and doctrines, and ultimately, the truth claim, the faith, the belief is this, that there is no God. That's it. And this faith or truth claim very much influences the way that you look at the world. Now, here's the thing, though, where Nietzsche and Freud and even the number one premise underlying religion as being a human search for God is misguided is that Christianity actually has nothing to do with that. Christianity is not a search for God. In fact, Christianity is the history of God's search for us. That's the way it's been in the beginning. It's the way it is now. And that's the way it will be forevermore. Christianity is very much God's search for us. We are not a madman searching for God in the marketplace. Rather, God has come searching in the marketplace for all kinds of mad people to stop running like Jonah did in the last series and be found and follow him. And the good news, as I've already told you, is this. God has been searching for us since the very beginning. And that's why we started where every good story would in the beginning. Now, for years, faith and science have been very much pitted against one another. Now, it wasn't always the case. I mean, faith and science kind of worked together hand in hand. But faith and science have been very much pitted against one another. And our understanding creation, why it is that we're here in the first place is very much central to this understanding of what God's search for us is all about. And so you might picture these two different accounts of creation as being this cosmic tug of war between what we might classically call creation, whatever that might mean, and all of the different nuances that go with it, and evolution, whatever that might mean, and all the different nuances that go with that. But creation and evolution are two different macro stories, we might say, of looking at the world. And we interpret them differently. For example, there would be some Christians who would say that unless you look at Genesis chapter 1 as being seven literal 24-hour days, that yes, you can look at your watch and watch the, the dial spin over 24 hours, unless you look at it as seven literal 24-hour days, well, you have to give up the rest of the Bible. You can't believe a single word of it that's true. Okay, now the hard part about that is if that were the case, you could not go to Red Lobster ever again. Your clothes would look different. And most importantly, I would say that every single one of you uh, in here, including myself, we should not have any eyes. Because at some point, I guarantee that you have lusted, and Jesus says, well, you've got to tear it out, right? Now you're looking at me like I'm crazy, so we better move on. So that's one way that you can look at the story of creation. We should interpret the Bible seriously and authoritatively. It's words, they are life-giving. What we find, though, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the account of creation, the biblical account of creation, 
is that the story of creation is not so much concerned with the how, but with the who. Yes, there's a how that goes to this, but what the Bible really points to is the bigger piece, and the bigger piece of creation is the who, and the who, of course, is none other than God. The who points to God. In fact, if you were to look at Genesis chapter 1, and I've summarized the way that I read it anyway, if you were to look at Genesis chapter 1, here's what you would find. In the beginning, who created? And who said? And who made? And who called? And who set? And who's tired of this at this point? Okay. The point is, as you work your way all throughout Genesis chapter 1, the story, the account, points to who? And yes, there's some how, right? We've got the separation of the land, sea, sky, there's space and time, there's plants, animals, and on the sixth day, our people. And our human tendency, though, is this. We get consumed with how the universe was formed, and in so doing, we miss the beauty, the grandeur, the wonder, the magnificence of who. And the bigger point of God's search for us is that in the beginning there's a who, and the who is God, and the who created everything. In fact, the way that the Hebrew Scriptures uh, point to it, it, it is that God spoke and things came into being. Didn't have to, like, you know, pump some iron, go running. This God speaks, and the universe is formed. Wow. I mean, I think Ellen was right this morning. We just kind of need to stand back in awe and cry out, holy. When we think about this who. And we're not given the theory of relativity. We're not given the laws of physics. We're not given those kinds of things. We get a bit of how God created. But what's more important, or at least what the Bible is more apt to tell us, is who. There's this God who's searching for a people. And so if faith shows us who, well, then we got to also talk about how. And I want you to recognize this morning that there is a very important distinction to make when we use this term evolution. And what I want to do is divide it into two categories for you. There's a guided evolution, which includes God's work and care, and there's an unguided evolution, which excludes God's care and work. I love what uh, Alvin Plantinga, one of my favorite Christian philosophers, says. He says, look, to be a Christian is not to be irrational. And I wonder sometimes if you feel like as you're, as you're talking with people, um, it, it feels like, well, maybe I just have to turn off my brain to be Christian. No. And when you begin to step back and you look at the who and you look at how God does this, oh my goodness, it, it begins to fall into two beautiful, wonderful categories. You've got a guided evolution by which God creates space and time and, and matter, and there's an intelligence behind it. Things unfold in their own due time. You have to create space and time for matter to emerge within. And then the matter has to interact with one another, and then things have to have proper laws of physics in place for them to hold together, and there's a divine guidance. And the beautiful part is this. That God is not some blind watchmaker who sets this thing on a crash course and goes, good luck, there's the science project, it's all on you. 
What the Bible points to is the fact that God continues to be intimately involved in the work of creation. God's providence and care doesn't stop. And so, you know, when we're hurting, when we're in the hospital, when our loved one is struggling, when our relationships are broken, when we feel lost and alone, what we recognize is there's very much a God who is searching for us that we can pray to and reach out to and worship. And this who responds to us. And respectfully, as wonderful as all of us are, he really doesn't need to. I mean, God's just fine on his own. It's not like, well, I'm lonely today. But God desires to. And there is an unguided version of evolution, one that is exclusive of God. Here's the hard part about it. Now, just think about this logically. For the universe to emerge, you have to have space and you have to have time for it to emerge within, Yes? But in the beginning, there is no space and time. In the beginning, there are no particles. And so what this version of evolution says is, look, it's all by natural selection. It's by altruistic value that the people who are nice, more or less, they're the ones who make it. And that's the most flawed thing I've ever heard. Why would being nice let you live another day? In fact, the absolute opposite should be true, right? You should look out for yourself and not anybody else. If this is all there is, it's just this biological process of living and breathing and eating and sleeping, you shouldn't care about anybody else. You should only care about yourself and living another 10 minutes. So it's flawed. And that's what planning is after. There's a who that's created all of this. And when you open Genesis chapter 1, when you open Genesis 1, what you should find is wonder. The wonder of a God who guided, logically unfolded all things in their own wonderful order, space and time and land and sea and sky and plants and then animals. And on the sixth day of creation, God created each one of us in his own image and went, wow, look at what I've done here. So good, in fact, God said, this is good. This is very good. Can you picture it? That's what we should get is wonder. And, and if we were to open Genesis chapter 2, what we, we should recognize is this beautiful harmony that God created in the fabric of creation between all things. That the word for humanity and the word from, for ground in, in the Hebrew scriptures are, are part of the same root. And that God took and formed from the ground, from the dust of the earth, in a beautiful, intimate, wonderful kind of way, formed each one of us from the same stuff of this creation. And yet what sets us apart is the fact that he breathed into us the breath of life to make us alive. What should cause us to wonder in the wonders of God is the fact that we could look at this creation and a beautiful garden and say, it's not only great to look at, but it's good for food. And when we read Genesis 2 and we realize that man and woman are part of the same Hebrew word, we recognize that people were created for relationship. Relationship with each other and ultimately relationship with God. And when we read Genesis chapter 2 and the story of creation, what we'd recognize is the wonder of the fact that God created all of this. 
and then said, it's yours. Take care of it. Now, parents out there, it's a little hard to do that with your kids, isn't it? Hey, it's all yours. You say those things, and then what's the next step? (laughs) Are you with me? I'm going to leave you home alone for 20 minutes the first time, and you pray that they have not discovered fire or... Are we tracking? And yet God, this magnificent, wonderful who that creation points to, this God who's intimately involved, this God who made all things by his own power and wisdom says, it's yours. Care for it. Be part of the creative process. I want you to have the joy of bringing things to life the way that I have brought things to life. Is how important? You bet. But the scriptures point us to who? The story of a God who is searching for a people to give life to and do life with. That's the beginning of the story. And somewhere along the way, I think we've forgotten this. You know, perhaps the emergence of our lives into the world has become nothing more than biological processes involving very white music and uh, red wine. Are we tracking? But it's not. This God created all things. This God, before there was time, knew that you would be here in this particular season in the life of the world to bring about a certain set of processes and redemptive purpose. And you're here not by happenstance, not by random chance, not by natural selection. You're here by God's providence. You're here because God, before there was time, desired that you would be here in this moment. Do you recognize this? That's the story of who. And the parable of the madman, well, I I think Nietzsche just missed the point because his madman runs into the marketplace, cries out, I'm searching for God, I'm searching for God, and people begin to chide him, did you lose him? Did he go on a a voyage? And then they began to laugh, and Nietzsche's madman continued, where is he gone? We killed him, you and I. There's no up, there's no down. Aren't you straying through an infinite nothing? Don't you feel the breath of empty space, he wrote. Don't we feel more night and the gravediggers burying God? Mustn't we become gods instead? This is the greatest deed in all of history and will be forevermore. And so Nietzsche wrote, that the madmen fell silent, as did the crowds in the marketplace who stared in astonishment. And from that day forward, Nietzsche prophesied in his own way that the madman would enter the church and the church would become nothing more than graves and sepulchers. It led him to his famous mantra that God is dead. And he did so with sadness because what he said would be the result is this. There would be no objective truth, And that words and thoughts would simply become opinions. And to some degree, isn't that where we find ourselves? A hundred and fifty years ago, Nietzsche's philosophy became the how. 
And here's the deal. Without who, I would say that how is really meaningless. If there's no purpose to creation, what's the purpose of life? It's simply natural selection and random chaos. Lack of regard for what's right or wrong or true. It's survival of the fittest. And that points us back to Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Notice what the scripture says. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Say it with me. It's always a big but. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. See, ingrained in the very fabric of creation is what scholar Abraham Joshua Heschel shares. Faith is ultimately our response to God's search for each one of us. And faith at its heart is really about trust. The question is, will we trust God? That who will provide all that we could ever possibly need and the purpose for our lives? Or will we indeed scramble the letters and search for how? How to have a better life, how to, how to be in charge, how to be in power, how to be in control, how to dominate. Will we look for how? Faith is ultimately our response of trusting God. And yet at the very beginning of time, in the very beginning of God searching for a people, what we've tended to do is scramble the letters. Instead of who, we want how. And when you boil it all down, what you get is the story of me. My world, my needs, my wants. And that's where Nietzsche's madman confronted the world. In the wee hours of uh, the morning, in the marketplace, a place of goods and services to provide everything anybody could ever possibly want, what he tried to show the world was that the world was beyond a need for God. And really what's happened is a world that has become more and more broken. 150 years later, all too often the church pursued different philosophies and political ideologies rather than that of the gospel. And it's left the world searching. Searching for hope, searching for purpose, searching for meaning. Nietzsche's world promises you an empty bank account and a full garage. And the gospel promises you everything. Recognition of a God who created you in his image for a magnificent purpose in this world to be part of the search for his children that are lost and missing. And friends, that's why we're here. Mark my words. We have to become a church that is on fire about searching for lost and hurting and missing people. Because if we're not, we failed. Four weeks ago, I said that in the next 365 days, it was your responsibility, just as it's my responsibility, to bring one person to Christ. How are you doing? What kinds of conversations are you having? How are you helping people who are searching know that God is already looking for them? 
Because it's on you. It's on us. God's been looking for a people. That's the way it started in the beginning. It's the way it is now. It's the way it will be. Let's be part of what it is that he's doing. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We love you. And when we open these scriptures, what we recognize is wonder. The wonder of a God who was searching for a people. And so you created. And you created all things good. And somewhere in the middle of the story, we're presented with this choice. A choice of who or a choice of how. We can trust you for what we need, for who we are, for what we're called to be and called to do, or we can go our own way and search and try to build a life where really, at the end of the day, we're just desirous to be God. We pray today, oh God, that you would forgive us. Forgive us, God, for trying to search for everything but you. Forgive us for the way that we run. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us today stop and desire to be found. We thank you, Jesus, that you are Lord, not only of this universe, but you long to be Lord of our lives. You died on a cross, you rose again from the dead on the third day. And that gives you the rightful place of being Lord in our lives. And so today we simply surrender to you. And we thank you that you bring us to this table to feed us as your children. You continue to provide for us today. So let's join in our communion liturgy. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We give you thanks, O God, through your beloved servant, Jesus Christ. It is he whom you have sent in these last times to save us and redeem us and be the messenger of your will. He is your word, inseparable from you, through whom you made all things and in whom you take delight. You sent him from heaven into the virgin's womb where he was conceived and took on flesh. Born of the Holy Spirit and of the virgin, he was revealed as your son. In the fulfillment of your will, he stretched out his hands in suffering to release from suffering those who place their hope in you, and so he won for you a holy people. Of his own free choice, he was handed over to his passion in order to make an end of death and to shatter the chains of the evil one, to trample underfoot the powers of hell and to lead the righteous into light, to establish the boundaries of death and to manifest the resurrection. And so taking the bread and giving thanks to you, O God, our Lord Jesus said, Take and eat, this is my body, which will be broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This is my blood, which will be shed for you. When you do this, you do it in memory of me. Remembering, therefore, his death and resurrection, we offer you this bread and cup, thankful that you have counted us worthy to stand in your presence and show you priestly service. We entreat you to send your Holy Spirit upon the offering of the Holy Church. Gather into one all who share in these sacred mysteries, filling them with the Holy Spirit and confirming their faith in the truth. 
that together we may praise you and give you glory through your servant, Jesus Christ. All glory and honor is yours, Father and Son, with the Holy Spirit in the Holy Church, now and forever. Amen. And we remember in this sacred meal that Christ was whole and we were broken. And so Christ was broken that we might be made whole. And Christ was full and we were empty. And so Christ emptied himself that we might be made full.